Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. This week I'll be talking with Dr. Brad East. And Dr. East is um, professor of theology at Abilene Christian University. He is also the author of The Church's Book, The Theology of Scripture in Ecclesial Context, um, out recently with Erdman's Press. Um, and it's a very uh, fascinating book. I enjoyed both uh, getting to, to talk with uh, Brad um, and also to read through a lot of his book um, where he helpfully uh, elucidates a connection that's not often um, named, the, the connection between how one understands the church and how one understands scripture. Um, and so the scripture doesn't just come out of nowhere. It has a relationship to Christ's body, um, and, and Brad helpfully uh talks through uh, what the theological relationship is between uh, the theology of Scripture and uh, one's ecclesiology, one's theology of the church. So I'm very thankful to have Brad on. Uh, also, my apologies uh, in the recording. Um, I was uh, just getting over um, uh, a sickness, and my voice is not very strong. Um, but, uh, but yes, yeah, so I pr uh, appreciate your understanding on that. Um, I also wanted to say thank you uh, to our twoest new Patreon supporters. Um, one, uh, Brian Better has been a supporter in the past, and he uh, recently donated on Patreon, and we want to say thank you to him, as well as uh, Kyrell Newell, um, who is our, our newest supporter, um, and very grateful to both of you all um, for helping keep the podcast running um, and for uh, uh, just uh, you know helping us keep this back catalog alive so that um, other people can listen to the to the all the uh, all the episodes that we have done to this point. Um, so if you'd like to support us, we would really appreciate it. We're on Patreon.com. Um, just search for a History of Christian Theology. Um, and uh, yeah, we have other podcasts that will be coming down the pike. We have uh, another conversation between Tom and Trevor and I um, on the nature of hope, as well as a, a, some other interviews. Um, and uh, we look forward to sharing those with you as well. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Brad East. All right. Uh, well, today uh, I'm very happy to welcome Brad East uh, to the podcast, to A History of Christian Theology. Uh, Brad recently wrote, well, I guess you actually have two books that are connected, uh, but the one that we're primarily going to talk about today is, Erd, uh, is the church's book, Theology of Scripture in Ecclesial Context with Erdman's Press. Uh, but your other book that is, uh, I remember at one point in the book you mentioned it, uh, but what, what is the other one that kind of relates to this? The other one is called The Doctrine of Scripture, and it came out just about six to eight months before. Okay. And and that one is more of your own dogmatic proposal, or and this is kind of the groundwork? or Yeah, it came out in reverse order. Uh, the, the first book I wrote after the dissertation, and the Erdman's book that just came out is the dissertation that basically lays the, the groundwork or the scaffolding for the, 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 the first book is both shorter, but also 100% sort of constructive, um, positive, dogmatic argumentation, whereas the one that we're going to be talking about is longer, denser, a lot more exposition, a lot more uh, academic, theoretical type questions. Okay. Um, and the, uh, so just to get, get us, um, going, um, 
the the kind of the main argument uh, of this book is uh well can why don't you say it in your own words like what is what are you trying to um establish uh in this in this book as far as the relationship between uh the the scripture and the church yeah it i, I just frame it in terms of a question um what role does ecclesiology have in bibliology, uh, where bibliology is um, the doctrine or theology of scripture and its interpretation, and ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church? Um, that's the that's the overarching question that I'm trying to uh, that I'm trying to investigate in the course of the book. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And um, just uh, as kind of like a background question. Um, I think if I have this right, are you, you're at Abilene Christian, and yeah, are they right. Church of Church of Christ? Yeah. Um, so I you, I don't think you me- I mean you mentioned the Stone Campbell movement uh, at su- at some point early on, but I don't know that you talk too much about your own ecclesial background at least in this book. Um, so I I did sort of have the question as I was reading through. I guess you know at one point you set out these typologies of the relationship between Scripture uh, and the Church. And one of them is kind of a Baptistic uh, typology, which I guess would be yours. Uh, but but you were but maybe more of a student of Jensen, right? Like, isn't Jensen closer to your? I, well, I don't know. Could you say something about where you fit uh, within the kind of typologies that you lay out? Maybe say I guess we could say what the typologies are uh, first, yeah. uh, just so people have an idea. But I was curious. I was like, well, where where is Brad in this? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, I'm, I, I kind of I'm hiding behind my uh, figures. Uh, you get you get more of me, if not my ecclesiology, in the uh, in the first book. But to your question about the types, yeah, for for listeners who have not read the book, I lay out at the beginning uh, a heuristic for thinking about um, Western Christendom, uh, and I don't align the three types of church with um, any one particular uh, tradition or denomination. What I say, all, all three types are sort of lowercase types. So I say mm-hmm. s- small c Catholic, small r Reformed, and small b Baptist. Um, Catholic would uh, include not only the Roman Church, but the Eastern Orthodox and the other separated Eastern churches. I think arguably Anglican uh, the Anglican communion in certain of its expressions or historical modes, that would be sort of number one. So think high church, think um, uh, emphasis on sacred tradition, think uh, priests, think bishops, think etc. cetera. Um, uh, second for small r reformed, I have in mind specifically magisterial Protestants rooted in um, the, uh, the great figures of the early and middle 16th uh, century Calvin Luther Busser at all. Um, uh, but not what many Americans and certainly American evangelicals think of as Protestantism. I mean, it's, it's an, it's an interesting argument whether Protestantism has ever even existed in North America in that particular uh, mode. And so then the third category is my catch all uh, that I take from um uh, James McClendon, uh, who proposed, he was a capital B Baptist, but he suggested that a small B Baptist encompassed the Anabaptist tradition, primitivist traditions, the various um, 
English as well as American forms of Baptist tradition. It could even encompass um, Pentecostals and evangelicals. Basically, it's a big tent for low church types of one kind or another who, uh, you know, typically do not have formal processes of ordination or at least of ordained authority uh, who are Bible alone in the strict sense, almost to the point of nuda scriptura rather than sola scriptura as the uh, slogan. And I, I use that as my heuristic to say these are these are the three main divisions or the three main families of Western Christendom as I see them. And then, as you know from the book, I read uh, a representative of each tradition Um and I mean, I assign them to that tradition, of course, since it's my typology. And then I say, look at what happens to their accounts of Scripture when you understand their ecclesial commitments. And I want, mm-hmm. and I want that to illustrate the thesis that ecclesiology it doesn't always determine, but it sometimes determines and always informs and influences uh, one's account of Scripture. Yeah. Um, and again, I guess maybe just to keep up with a little bit of background, um, you're, you, you sort of, you clear some groundwork with Bart, um, right? So you have these typologies, uh, but you sort of begin with, because to some extent, everyone kind of has to do theology in the wake of Bart, I guess, uh, in the late 20th, early 21st century, um, kind of American context, uh, or English speaking context, as you say, which I, I actually, when you said that, I originally thought it is fascinating. I think you're right. But I was like, uh, also, it's just funny that he wrote in German. And I, you know, and I was like, you know, I was just thinking to myself, like, I, I spent some time in Berlin, but uh, it doesn't, I don't, I don't even know. Does, does this German speaking world, you know, do they feel the same uh, kind of looming shadow of Bart? I, I'm not even 100% sure. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'll say in a moment why yeah. Bart's shadow lingers over this project. Uh, I don't have, I don't have any read. Uh, on the uh, German theological scene, but certainly yeah. the German, the Germans, the, the theologians I know who write in German today do still take Bart as a primary interlocutor. I think the broader question would be Bart's role in German church life or German intellectual life, which I don't have a clue about. I would have to yeah. imagine that, that it is small in the same way that it's small, <laughs> that the influence of theologians in the West in any context uh, is quite small. But uh, part of the reason why Bart is a kind is a partial fourth figure in the book is the question that I, that I gave at the outset um, that became the governing question for this project was rooted in not a frustration, but a a prior question about a movement in the American or English-speaking theological academy called Theological Interpretation of Scripture, which, broadly speaking, is probably about 25 years old. Um, You you might date it to um, uh, Stephen Fowle's book, Engaging Scripture, which I believe came out in 1998. And um, this is a kind of ragtag, not especially unified movement, more a kind of protest against the hegemony of historical criticism and biblical scholarship and scriptural interpretation. And it I don't know if it's, there, there's a sense in which it's already done, but what it did, and it, and it gathered up a lot of energy um, a lot of publications, there are journals, uh, et cetera, et cetera. People are certainly still writing about it. Uh, it wanted to imagine um, a way beyond 
the sort of sterile dichotomy between um, historians reading the Bible like it as if it were any other book on the one hand, you know, in a purely historical or literary mode and systematic theologians just ignoring the Bible entirely. Um, or when they look at the Bible, maybe not doing, uh, giving it the kind of sustained textual attention that biblical scholars are rightly um, renowned for. And the um, frustration or question that I saw in the literature was that it did not seem like the folks in theological interpretation were really talking to each other. It seemed like they were talking past one another. And my thesis was they, their disagreements above the surface about the Bible were rooted in prior and more fundamental disagreements about the church below the surface. Mm. And that led to the investigation. And I hope in the book, uh, I hope I demonstrate that thesis. I mean, in a sense, it's a, it's a self-evident thesis. It doesn't need that much demonstrating. It's more, I'm trying to show the logical and theological connections between different types of claims one might make in either locus. That is the doctrinal locus of the church or the, the doctrinal locus of scripture. Um, so it's a very, in that sense, a very, it's a very modest argument. Uh, what you think about the church matters for what you think about the Bible. The, the practical upshot, the scholarly or disciplinary upshot is uh, much of the time, perhaps most of the time, when two people are disagreeing about hermeneutics, um, they might actually be uh, um, airing, airing disagreements in one, uh, in one facet of theology that re really they should focus on another. Um, they have disagreements about the church. They belong to different streams of the church, and uh, the scripture stuff is downstream of those disagreements. Yeah, interesting. Well, one way that I uh, – and, and this may be getting into a little sort of nitty-gritty uh, details, but um, I, I – so actually, I'll, two things. Um, on Twitter, I saw someone make a post uh, about how they they learned to memorize scripture, and it was all out of context. Like a strand of three chords is not easily broken. Um, and the person was making the point that this sort of phrase uh, was taken to have to do with uh, how uh, in a relationship, God is the third party. And it's this sort of uh, image of marriage. And and this person, as far as I know, is sort of raised more evangelical, but had become kind of part of the scholarly guild um, and was, sort of saw this as ripping it out of context. And when you actually looked at the real context, you would know uh, that, that that's not what that verse means. Uh, this verse means uh, that, you know, some other, I don't even remember what she proposed that it actually meant, uh, but it has nothing to do uh, with marriage and with God and relationships and all these sorts of things. So I want to contrast that with I, I'm I'm also curious it you know you begin in your uh, your dedication is to Miss Tony Moman uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right. <laughs> Moman Tony. Moman Moman uh, uh, Tony to the countless children who first heard the name of Jesus at her feet dedicated teacher fellow theologian and lifelong lover of the church and the church's book so. I don't, I don't know that I memorized that chord of three strands is easily broken, but I memorized lots of scriptures. The one that came to my mind was Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. Um, and when we, you know, we were all told that that meant that God had a plan for us. Um, so how do those two strands of like ways of reading scripture in sort of shape this question of 
like, what is the role of the church to help us think through what the text means? Uh, what does Jeremiah 29, 11 mean for me, you know, for someone like Miss Tony uh, versus uh, what is, what, what might it mean for an academic and how, do, how does that relate to your question of bibliology or, but yeah, bibliology and then, and ecclesiology. Yeah. What a wonderful question. Uh, Miss Tony will be delighted to hear that you, uh, that she's the prompt for this question. Um, so I think I will say, two things about that. So the first is, I am just not at all interested in um, correcting quote unquote misapplications or misunderstandings or misuses of um, uh, verses and passages from scripture. Um, The question to me is not uh, whether those are taken out of context. Of course they are. <laughs> they can't right. they can't be useful to us unless we take them from their context and apply them in our own. Um, and that's always going to involve um, the generation or production of new meanings. So I have I just have no time and no business for, you know, you know, the one true lasting meaning of a text is what it originally meant in its original context to its original audience. No thanks. Like that just, that keeps the Bible preserved in an archive, you know, uh, 10 stories below ground and only the scholars can access it. They can go down, do some excavation, come back and tell us what it means. You know, not only no thanks, but uh, in terms of like, that's not uh, useful to any ordinary Christian ever, but that's never been how the church has ever read the Bible until the last right. couple hundred years. And for the most part, still not the last 200 years. That's a, that's a actually a minority, uh, academic strand. So, okay. So then you say, well, what about the Jeremiah passage? You know, every commencement and, uh, convocation, you know, you've ever been to at a Christian, university or institution, somebody's going to quote it. Um, they mean it very earnestly. Is that a good use or, uh, yeah, is that, a, is that a good deployment of that verse? No, although I'm not that, I have to confess, I'm not as aggravated by it as many of my colleagues and peers are, but no, it's not a good use. And then you say, okay, well, it sounds like you said it's all up for grabs on the one hand, but then you said, no, that's not a very good use. Well, it's not a very good use, not because you're using it in a different context or because the per- the, the person who has memorized it uh, uh, does not know um, sixth century um, Hebrew exilic contexts, uh, <laughs> etc. cetera. Um, it's because, as you allude to, um, I'll put it in one of two ways. One is it's bad theology, which is just another way of saying uh, the church's faith, the church's tradition is not controlling the interpretation. It's not controlling the usage. Um, It's bad theology because we know um, from scripture, from the faith, from sacred tradition, whatever, that that's not actually, (laughs) that's not actually uh, how God works in relation to us. Uh, We look at the person of Christ um, God's beloved son, and what happens to him is rejection, uh, exclusion, uh, torture, and a humili- a humiliated, a humiliating public death. Um, what happens to his apostle to the Gentiles? Well, Jesus Jesus says so in the book of Acts. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the wider context of Jeremiah twenty nine, of course, will also give you that. You know, you're going to die in exile. (laughs) Um, uh, This is 
bad news, but uh, encompassed uh, or surrounded by good news. There's good news. The good news is that the Lord is still with you and he hasn't abandoned you and your children are going to return, but you're going to die, right? You're going to die there. Um, uh, that doesn't require a historical critic to tell you. Yeah. Um, uh, the pat, you know, the, the, the context of the passage uh, will tell you that. But again, I, I want to be clear because I, I feel I can almost feel myself trending in the direction of saying you can't quote a passage um, sort of unrelated to its original context. The street, the three strands thing. I'm just not worried about that. I think yeah. that I think that scripture should saturate the, the minds and the language and the euphemisms and everything that Christian people are about, the way they talk, the way they think, the way they live. And so taking a, taking a proverb that has one sense and dropping it down into a new context and finding another sense, yeah, I'm just not worried about it. And be, precisely in that context, because it, it doesn't imply anything inapt theologically. But I'll stop myself. I'll stop myself there. <laughs> no, yeah, it it energized me too, and I think in part it energized me because I have some similar like questions. So you know, I mean, if I think about my own kind of trajectory, like I was, I I feel like actually, and maybe this is this is where I want to put the question to you though. Um, I like I was sort of raised in a kind of a context that wasn't. Um, or I was raised in a church, a Southern Baptist church, uh, but we weren't like, you know, when people told us to memorize passages, we weren't taught also the historical critical method. Um, we were just taught that these passages were meant salvation for us. Um, they were good news for us. And so what we memorized, we memorized because uh, it was our salvation. Um, and, and I think that that was exactly right. Like I, I wouldn't want to uh, discredit that or disclaim that uh, just because I later then went to uh, an undergrad, a Baptist undergrad, and then later, you know, kind of a more liberal, but ultimately not all that different uh, 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 seminary where they said, no, what matters is the original intention of the author or what matters is the ancient context around. And that is what is going to save us uh, from misreadings. So I, I wondered as I was reading even your typologies, I did wonder like, you know, uh, there, there is a kind of like there's, oh, there's almost like a, a a folk or common sense or I don't, I don't know what the right phrase is, a way of like evangelical way of reading scripture that isn't actually concerned uh, with um, the original intention of the authors because they know that the scripture is salvation. Um, and so, what I, I don't know, how would you respond to that? Because it does seem like to some extent it is this worry of an ac more academic worry when you go to seminary, then you learn to be concerned about the original intention of the author yeah that's right no that's well put i i mean i couldn't agree more with the way you were uh putting it in um in the the first book the doctrine of scripture uh uh i have a chapter on the ends e-n-d-s of scripture mm -hmm. and i make i make uh pains there i go to great lengths to show that um what um seminary or academy trained pastors and scholars think of the point of scripture think think uh the point of scripture to be it's just um uh it's not nothing it's not insignificant but it's not the main it's not the main thing um you know the lutherans um the Schol the lutheran scholastics in the 16th and 17th century had a wonderful way of 
describing um, the twofold authority of scripture. Mm. Uh, its primary authority was sacramental, is sacramental, uh, in that it is the vehicle of the living and saving word of God. Uh, the living God speaks through these words to reach out and touch you. Uh, it is a means of grace. You hear the gospel preached. When you go to church and you hear the word of the Lord read aloud in the assembly, uh, uh, the spirit is bringing the grace of Jesus Christ to you through the spoken word. And and you're like, okay, well, what about like teaching, you know, uh, reproof, all the, all the second Timothy three stuff. It's like, well, the, it's secondary authority is as a statutory norm. So whenever someone raises their hand, you know, Arius raises his hand and says, you know, Hmm, maybe there was a, maybe there was when the sun was not. And yeah. the church, the church looks at, looks at the Bible as a statutory norm and says, Nope, you know, yeah. we're going to, we're going to address that question. And then when it comes up again, it's asked and answered, you know, that's behind us. Um, and I think we flip those around. Uh, we, that is in the academy, the, the well-trained mm-hmm. academic types uh, who think, no, the sort of point is to understand it. But of what use is understanding the Bible in that sense to Miss Tony or yeah. to my mom, who's woken up and read the Bible devotionally every morning of her life for the last 35 years? I mean, right. am, I, am I supposed to tell her, uh, like, like, you know, I regret to inform you that you've never understood the Bible? You know, right. no, she reads it as God speaking to her every morning. Yeah. Now, do we want to nuance that both theologically and hermeneutically? I'm sure. Do we want to do we want to offer a, a sophisticated account so that we, you know, uh, to guard to, to create guardrails? Yes. You know, I this this is a deeply uh, in one sense, this book, both of my books are deeply Catholic in the sense that like. We are not meant to be, um, individual Christians are not meant to be uh, a theological Descartes sitting in a room alone with the Bible, thinking Christianity up from scratch. So to the extent that any of our people in the pews have imbibed that message, you know, I'm going to sit down and be the first one to figure this out because that's the point, then we've gone seriously wrong. But the way you were raised, uh, in a similar way, that the way I was raised, I wouldn't have used that language as a child or a teenager, but I would have, I would have just said, this is sustenance. Like mm-hmm. this, this is here for me as a Christian. Um, it's my lifeblood. Uh, yeah. and if I don't go to it, um, then I'm not going to be, be receiving, um, what I need for, uh, the journey of following Christ. And I think in a very simple way, that's true in all of our uh, technical um, jargon and sophisticated theological theories exist to show why that is the case rather than to undermine it in any way. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I keep, I keep, uh, hinting at the question of your, uh, your own ecclesial background, um, because in part, because I'm curious how it has formed you, uh, but it also helps me think about the ways that I was formed. Um, but, um, I, Jor- uh, Jordan Wood was on the podcast. He just wrote a book on Maximus, the confessor. Um, yeah. and he was raised, uh, Church of Christ as well, or in the Stone Campbell movement broadly. Um, and we were, 
uh, we were talking about um, how both of us had this sort of sense uh, that that we did almost have to make up Christianity on our own. Um, every, and it felt like almost every generation. Um, and there was this sort of... Um, there was this sort of tension of like, you know, you wanted to conserve in some sense what you, you know, what uh, the scriptures as they are, um, but you also wanted to, you know, figure out everything for yourself. Like you had to, you, you know, you couldn't rely on anyone else. Um, you had to do it. And and I, we were just talking about how exhausting uh, that that was for, you know, sort of the 16, 17 year old Chad and Jordan. Um, and, it, you know, and then once I sort of uh, for me, my epiphany came when I was in Israel with Jewish uh, uh, rabbinic students and they would talk about the Talmud. And I thought, oh, you just added all this stuff to scripture. But then they were like, you know, but then I was like, oh, but you have a whole way of thinking through what the text means for you and a whole conversation. Um, uh, that you can enter into. And, and so then I was like, well, am I supposed to become Jewish? Um, that was my first thought. I was like, Oh, I guess I'm Jewish. Cause this is cool. Um, and, and then I was like, no, there has to be a greater tradition in the church of Christianity of saying, no, I don't have to make everything up on my own. Like I can enter into a 2000 year conversation, um, that, that doesn't sort of just require me in my room alone. So yeah, I don't know how, if you care to respond to that, but, but I do feel like there's something sort of interestingly like similar, even, you know, even across like sort of broadly, I know that uh, stone Campbellites don't, aren't exactly evangelical. Um, so I know that there's some differences, but, but there's some, some of those threads that seem to be similar. No, one that's, that's um, well, well said. And um, I had a slightly different experience for me. It wasn't, I did not have the anxiety of having to make it up for myself. Um, I had some sense that it pre, you know, the sense that Christianity preexisted me and it doesn't depend on me, etc. And so, so when I came upon the tradition, it in, instead of being a kind of shock to my system, it was like uh, I've been waiting for this my whole life. You know that yeah. that I'm coming home. You know that like these yeah. are these are my people. These are um, uh, these are these are my mothers and fathers in the faith, and I just need to sit at their feet. You know, I, I don't need to. Um, I need to unlearn if I have learned at all. If, I need to unlearn this this scholarly uh, uh, skeptical. Um, uh, sorry, that's good. Excuse me. Sorry, I was. Uh, started getting a call and wanted to make sure that, uh, uh, wasn't, uh, a nine one one. Um, yeah. <clears throat> uh, I, in terms of, uh, coming to the tradition, I wanted to unlearn those habits of suspicion and skepticism. Um, and, uh, and, so in that sense, yeah, I'm a very, <laughs> uh, I'm a very, um, unrepresentative, uh, Stone Campbellite. I mean, I would, I, I would not identify as a Stone Campbellite. I was raised in Churches of Christ. Uh, I worship at a Church of Christ, and I am very happily uh, placed at a Church of Christ um, institution here at Abilene Christian. And um, you know, many low church types, whether they're evangelicals, whether they're Baptists, whether they're COC types like me, have that kind of uh, mixed legacy or baggage. I. Um, am very fortunate. I would say I'm very blessed because I did not uh, come with any of that baggage. Um, and I just grew, I grew up with a love for the church, a love for Christ and a love for scripture. 
and reading Augustine and Irenaeus and Ignatius and Aquinas and Maximus and the rest was just uh, finding other, I was going to say like-minded, not like-minded. I'm not like them at all, but finding like-hearted people. These are, these are um, the teachers that I, that I have to learn from. So it was a very smooth and continuous rather than discontinuous or bumpy um, introduction for me. Yeah. No, that's that's helpful. I mean, I guess it. I guess it's probably for me. It would depend on uh, where where I'm thinking about it being in the journey. At times, it felt very bumpy. Um, at times, it felt smoother too. But um, yeah. Oh, that that yeah, that's interesting. And so you know, so you you've put a great emphasis on the church, um, and you felt like this was continuous. Um, I couldn't help but thinking like when I was reading, going through your, um, so you use uh, John Webster as the representative of the magisterial Protestants, you use uh, John Howard Yoder as the representative of uh, the kind of Baptistic type, and then you use Robert Jensen as kind of the Catholic type. And with your emphasis on the church and all of this, I couldn't help but wonder if your horse was kind of Jensen. Um, was that like, that was maybe where you identified closer uh, than with these other thinkers. Um, but I don't know, say a little bit about how, how Jensen and maybe all three of them though, um, helped you recover this sense of uh, how the church shapes, how we understand the Bible. Yeah. Uh, great question. Um you're right. I, my uh, Jensen probably is my horse in this three horse race. Um, but I hope that so so uh, f- uh, for readers who come to the book, um, I, it goes the sequence is, is Bart is kind of casting this shadow, uh, which I realized I, I never actually explained. Uh, I never actually explained why he cast this shadow. Uh, let me say that real quick, and then I'll explain the three oh. the, <laughs> the yeah. three horsemen. I guess maybe it could be four with uh, Bart. The the reason uh, for Bart, by the way, is because that movement I was referring to earlier, theological interpretation, really took its lead from Bart on the one hand. So Bart is kind of the progenitor from afar of theological interpretation and this critique of, of historical critical approaches. And then on the other, uh, Yoder studied under Bart, Jensen studied under Bart, and Webster uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s was one of the world's premier English-speaking exponents of Bart's thought. So there's this sense of, okay, I've got three Bardians who are receiving his, they're three weird Bardians receiving his influence and inflecting it in certain ways. And given his legacy for theological interpretation, let's trace that out and sort of see what happens given their, given their respective uh, ecclesial commitments. Um, uh, Webster, as you say, representing magisterial Protestantism, Jensen, small c Catholic, and Yoder, the small b Baptist. Uh, what I do in each of the chapters is try to lay out fairly um, their account of Scripture, their account of the Church, the logical connections, and then, I, and then I'm cr- offering criticisms at the material level of particular claims. And I don't have that much to criticize in Jensen's ecclesiology. My criticisms, I do have one big one, but most of them come in, uh, come in elsewhere, in other words. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right that once I get going constructively in the final two chapters, uh, my, when I put my cards on the table, they are largely with, uh, 
largely with Jensen, but I do, I genuinely do believe because these are three figures from whom I've learned a great deal that Webster and Yoder also have much to teach us in both areas. And so I wanted to keep those gains in the final two chapters and not sort of pick the winner of the three. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. And, and so, um, I just maybe thinking a little bit about the role of the church and why Jensen was so important. Um, at one point when you, you were defining the, 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 the uh, theological interpretation of scripture and you put the emphasis on God, uh, uh, the speech of God in the church, um, the, the whole time I, I'll just, uh, let me see if I can remember, but, uh, I had, I had a note in, in, um, in there about, you know, why, uh, why it seems that for like, you know, a, a lot of American, you said uh, a lot of American Protestants or uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> I need to cut this. Hang on. Let me, I'm looking through this. Where was I looking? Oh yeah. So you, you define the theological interpretation of scripture, um, an approach to Christian reading of the Bible, canonical, holy scripture that relativizes historical critical methods, foregrounds, theological convictions and interests, and assumes a scripturally mediated communicative, relation between the triune god and the church um and then uh you know when you're going when you are explicating jensen you have the same or similar emphasis on the church and i couldn't help but thinking uh for a lot of american protestants of which i am one uh we have a hard time uh when uh you start talking about the church um right so uh, you know and i have i guess because i've been reading augustine for so long or because i was trained by a jesuit um i'm more than happy uh to think about you know christ's relationship to his church but why is it that uh a lot of american christians might find that uh, emphasis on the church uh so um Get, get a little squeamish uh, about, um, you know, uh, how important the church is for you in this uh, in this work. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, two ways of answering that. One is to answer the question as asked and one to answer the question that you didn't ask. Um, and I'll see if I can do both. Um, I mean, the emphasis on the church is because that is um, the, in, the 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 it's the theme of the Bible. It's the, uh, as I tell my students, I teach a class in a, a course in ecclesiology every fall semester. And I tell them um, the story from Genesis 12 through Re Revelation 22 is God's calling and formation of a people for himself. Um, there's not a verse in that f between uh, Genesis 12 and Revelation 22 that is not somehow related to um, God's election of a people. Um, the business of the Bible is the calling and formation and mission and purpose and destiny of God's people. Um, so the reason why the emphasis is there is because that's the whole shebang, right? Uh, that's, okay. that's, it's the family of Abraham, whether, whether by birth or by baptism, um, you know, the, the, uh, Tertullian's line, uh, more than one line, you know, extra ecclesium nulla salus. There's no self, there's no salvation outside the church, but also, uh, you know, he who would not have, uh, the church for a mother would may not have God for a father. Uh, yeah. As you know from your reading in patristic theology, this is just a given. It's not. It's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not argued for. It's a premise because the church fathers read their Bibles. Um, mm. They knew. They knew that this was the whole deal. This is what Paul's letters are about, start to finish. They are about the formation of a new community, a new covenant community centered on uh, Israel's. Messiah and how Gentiles can join uh, Jews as 
uh, children of Abraham and therefore children of God. You don't get you don't get God as your father without Abraham as your father. I mean, all of these things are intertwined. Um, I'll go ahead and plug. I'll go ahead and uh, uh, plug my next book. It comes out in about a year. It's in the Lexham. Christian Essentials series. Ben Myers had a book on the Apostles' Creed in there. Peter Lighthart had a couple books in there. Wesley Hill had one on the Lord's Prayer, and mine is on the Church. Um, okay. And uh, it's it's a more more popular level, not scholarly. Yeah. And so this is I'm, I'm revising the manuscript as we speak, and so it's very much on my mind. That's why I wanted to answer the question you didn't ask. So yeah. the, to the to the cultural question. I'm, all the all the answers that come to my mind are the obvious ones. I mean, American we we Americans are small D Democrats. We're egalitarian. We're levelers, and we're individualists. Uh, and uh, all of our all of the relig- all of our homegrown religious traditions um, have that hyper Protestant, hyper evangelical, hyper enlightenment day. Cartesian notion that it's me and it's God and there's nothing in in between and the whole point is God wants to save a bunch of individuals and that's not true um, that's not that's not the framework uh, that's not the framework as the church has ever understood it it's not the framework uh, if you read the Bible uh, and it makes nonsense out of the church which is why you can have why I can have very serious committed twenty something college students who are Christians ask me like, why, why am I supposed to go to church? Like I've, I've already got, I've already got the thing. Like I'm, I'm, I've, I've got Jesus. Like that there's this kind of optional extra, I guess, if I need friends or I need support, but like, why is it there? And that question could not occur (laughs) to anyone until very recently. Certainly. uh, Yeah. It's a question not generated by, North American context, but um, incubated, I'll say, incubated on our shores. And that's a, it's a real problem. Uh, I, I just was teaching a class at my church and I have a lady who is very sharp and she's always uh, quick to uh, ask me sort of hard questions. And I use the line outside the church, there is no salvation. Um, and, and she's, perked up real quick and you know was like whoa wait a minute uh and and uh and then she brought up and i thought it was interesting she and i she brought up the thief on the cross um and you know and i was like man that is such a go-to passage for us like we want to make sure that that person uh is the you know is we have an account for that and my response was something like well, I'm not sure that we need to do all of our theology based on this one very specific instance of which there can't be any other, uh, <laughs> uh, given you know Christ's incarnation and how all, all of that sort of thing. But I was like, but also I think he is a part of the church still. Um, like I was like, I don't, you know. But anyway, it was just sort of funny. I was like, man, that was the idea. That was like where where we like. I feel like that's where we reach as Protestants. Like it's like, oh yeah, we we would rather identify with the thief on the cross. Uh, than have to talk about the importance of the church. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, and it, it, it is this strange uh, Protestant or certainly American Protestant and evangelical habit of mind to take exceptions as norms rather than as, as exceptions yeah. to the rule. Um, I mean, the, the premise of every, as I tell my 
students in when they ask these hard theology questions. The premise of every theological answer is God can do whatever God wants. <laughs> so um, we're not placing limits on God's salvific power or will. We are describing what God has revealed to us about the ordinary way of God's saving work. And the ordinary way is uh, belonging to Abraham's family as the family of God. And how do you yeah. do that if you're a Gentile? Because you're not born into it through Christ. Um, yeah. So, but, but of course, Jesus as God incarnate uh, can save uh, whom he pleases. And moreover, as you say, he's not not adding him to God's family by uh, declaring his salvation, he is including and incorporating him into God's family. It just doesn't look like, quote unquote, going to church because he's literally on a cross. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I got, uh, I don't, I don't know. I got to be honest. I don't know Jensen very well. Um, and so I, I, I was tracking one of your, uh, like footnotes and I, I ended up reading, uh, some article that Jensen wrote about why he didn't become Catholic. Yeah. Uh, and so I was just sort of curious. Cause like there is, you know, another, another sort of, uh, uh, again, this is more anecdotal. I've never seen anyone try to run the numbers on this, um, and maybe it's because the kind of people that I encounter uh, at, at university and stuff are a weird sort. Uh, but it does seem like there are a lot of evangelicals, um, a lot of American Protestants who do the kind of theological education that we do, broadly speaking. I know you know yours is different than mine, but um, – end up going to Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholic. Um, and so I was curious that Jensen, your, your horse, uh, representative of the Catholics, uh, actually had a piece about why he didn't become Catholic. So yeah. could you say a little bit about like, what is, what was the resistance there and why not? Why should, you know, to some extent, why shouldn't we actually take the small C and make it the big C? That's uh, a great, that's a great question. So, okay. So in my mind, uh, what I want to say is about, um, the trends that the trend that you're identifying Jensen himself and then Jensen as a model. Okay. Uh -huh. So if I, if I get off the beaten path, uh, bring me back. Okay. So I couldn't, I couldn't agree more about um, the trend lines in theological education in North America. It seems to me that for the most part, um, uh, if you come in and you remain a Christian, you go high church, uh, yeah. you, you become, you become Anglican, uh, Anglican Orthodox or, or Roman Catholic. Uh, yeah. That's that, it, it, by the by droves, um, and often often it's not uh, it's folks coming from an evangelical background. Um, and you know the question is why? Well, it's what we've already said. It's like if if you were raised to think that Christianity was born yesterday, and then you are introduced to the tradition, and the tradition is not this scary papist nightmare of corruption, but rather this beautiful storehouse of treasures for. Um, every every for all the baptized, then you're like, well, where can I find that? Where can I find uh, icons? Where can I find the intercession of the saints? Where can I find the creeds? Where can I find the councils? Where can I find the memories of Saint Maximus and Pope Saint Leo the Great and Saint Gregory of Nazianzus and so on? Well, really, only in two or three communions, at least rep as represented in the West, um, and Typically, a certain kind of person goes to Rome, a certain kind of person goes to Orthodoxy, and Anglicanism is sometimes for traditional types and sometimes for folks who love the liturgy, love tradition, but are a little bit more progressive. That's how kind of I see it. Right. Um, 
and that's that's what I think is going on there. So turning to turning to, uh, and I will at the end of this finally answer your question about me. Oh, it's all right. uh, the the, burn, the burning question about me. Uh, the <laughs> Jensen uh, Jensen in terms of his own personal journey, he was uh, deep by the influence of his wife Blanche. He was um, uh, deeply committed to ecumenism and the ecumenical project, which really was as he was going into his master's and and doctoral work was kind of at its the uh, peak in terms of influence and. Uh, energy drawing people into its orbit, and uh, he he got involved in this because he saw the divisions of the church as a fundamental theological problem and a threat to the witness of the gospel in the world. Um, and he spent decades on Lutheran Catholic dialogues, Lutheran other dialogues. He was he was a Lutheran by confession. Um, for folks who don't know, and what he reflects on in that Christian Century piece is he could be Catholic, nothing doctrinal. Nothing sacramental was keeping him from uh, swimming the Tiber, and he had many friends and colleagues who did, and he blessed and affirmed their decisions. Uh, what he wanted to do, he, he, he did not perceive his salvation to be at stake. If he did, he would go. As it stood, he was born into the Lutherans, got his training among the Lutherans, and did most of his teaching and writing among the Lutherans. He was ordained, um, as were Webster and Yoder. And... He said, this is where God has placed me in his wounded body. And what I want to do is to be uh, a tool in the hand of the spirit to further or to bring about some future arrangement or settlement where in Christ's body is reunited partially or fully. So I want to be part of the solution on this side of the divide, imagining an unimaginable future uh, rather than go solo and leave my sisters and brothers in Christ among the Lutherans behind. Um, he didn't think that was the quote unquote right choice, just that that was what he felt he discerned his calling was. And so third, um, I've ever since I read Jensen for the first time and, and saw his approach to ecumenism and the divided church, um, I've always taken it as my own personal model. Um, that is, however convinced I may be um, by uh, the great tradition, um, however drawn I may, I may be to the liturgy and the sacraments and the creeds, um, so long as I don't discern that my salvation is at stake, like Jensen did, what I'm going to do is toil in the fields I've been placed in. Uh, because as I said, I've been nothing but blessed by my tradition. I don't have all that baggage I need to get away from. And I will tell you, I don't know what your experience has been among my people, there is just enormous hunger and receptivity to this stuff. There's not resistance, you know. No, uh, it's not a prophet is not without honor except situation. Um, I teach Sunday school as well in my local church, and uh, folks eat it up. They want to know about Augustine. They want to know about the councils. They want to know about the creeds. They want to think theologically. And so long as I can both bless and be blessed by. Uh, the tradition in which I was placed by God, uh, trusting in providence, then I'm going to keep doing that. And I take Jensen as my lodestar there. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, well said. Um, I, I, when I read that piece and even just hearing you talk about it a little bit more, it reminded me, uh, there was a, 
I think it was an autobiography that maybe hadn't been published, but of Thomas Oden. Um, and I could, uh, do you know Thomas Oden? Um, and I couldn't help but think of some similar, some similarities um, in the kind of, you know, the work that they both did, uh, but but staying within their traditions, respective traditions, yeah. even with even with their appreciation for. Um, the, the great tradition, but also the ecumenical movement. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, when, and when you were saying all that, I spent some time in, uh, in France at Tese, uh, and Frère Roger is famous for saying, how can we offer forgiveness to the world if we can't forgive each other? Um, and and so, and so there's, uh, you know, I, I sort of, uh, all this is just a way of echoing. Um, it's, it's interesting how many theologians kind of make a journey like this, uh, but, you know, feel their, you know, their heart breaks for the divisions, That's uh, right. but also still feel at home uh, That's to right. some extent. Yeah. And what I would add is, you know, I'm, I have a few, I have some friends, you know, the, the, the quirky semi trad Presbyterian reform types who are fighting the losing fight in North America. Um, uh, there is this probably this fourth category, but to be honest, I never encountered them in my studies. I encountered them after the fact. Uh, but I do think it's a kind of sub 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 movement, um, and uh, within its uh, own neck of the woods, it's having modest success. And so I wouldn't want to sell them short because it's actually the way I try to lead my own students. You know, my students who are undergrads, some bound for ministry, some not. Uh, I'm not selling them on like small C Catholic tradition. Like they, that is like the, the, all those words are foreign and pretty scary. Um, and they come with a lot of baggage. Uh, even if I kind of train them to see it as not scary, but really what I want for them is not to per se join one of those three great global communions, though that'd be fine if they discern that's what God wanted them to do. I want them to be the best possible Protestants that they can be, i.e. magisterial Protestants, not lowest common denominator DIY American Christianity or evangelicalism, where uh, we, all, we, we basically treat church as like a local tech startup that'll probably be dead in 30 years anyway, but we'll have fun while it lasts. Like uh, treating, you know, donors and elders as venture capitalists funding these little ventures that then die. Uh, No, like hook into, sync up with the great tradition. Be like Luther, be like Calvin, be like Melanchthon, be like uh, Gerhard, be like Turretin, be like Bart, be be like these folks who uh, are confessional Protestants. There's no, no bones about that. No question about it. And who read and value and have affection for the 2000 year family history, really 4,000 year family history, but after Christ, the 2000 year family history that is yours by baptism. Um, and I find I, I get a lot of purchase with that. Because it makes intuitive sense. They know that Christianity wasn't actually made up three days ago. They know that it didn't begin the day before they were born. Uh, they know that these people that they are exposed to are wise and thoughtful and faithful. Many of them died for the faith. And uh, so in, if, if I gave a kind of uh, the three-strand high church off-ramp for academics, in my experience, uh, there is a there is a fourth off ramp from kind of normy low church American uh, Baptist or uh, evangelical 
um, faith, and that is to to find the fullness of magisterial Protestant teaching and to go deep on those sources in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, but also to use them as a gateway into um, the patristic and medieval tradition, and, and that that works well both for uh, high-minded or intellectual types, but also just for folks um, uh, uh, ordinary 22 year old college students who want to have a deeper faith. Yeah. Um, well, that was uh, very well said. I feel like that's as good a place as any, uh, to end the conversation. Um, and, uh, I, I hope, you know, with most of my conversations, I try not to have it be simply a recapitulation of the book. Although I will say with Ross McCullough, I did do that more because I was like <laughs> trying to follow the argument. Um, and so I, but I, I, so I appreciate, I hope, uh, you know, I, I hope, Reader or uh, listeners will go out and read the book and buy the book uh, because there is a lot of richness um, in understanding Webster and Jensen, and there's just a lot more uh, that you talk about um, with these types and and how they all fit. So, um, I yeah, Brad, Brad East, uh, uh, the book is uh, the Church's book, and thank you for being uh, on the History of Christian Theology, and appreciate your work. Thank you. This was a pleasure.